Kura, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is Professor Tim Naish. Tim is a professor in earth science at the Antarctic Research Centre at Te Heringawaka Victoria University, and he's a program leader for New Zealand's Antarctic Science Platform. His research focuses on Antarctic climate evolution, ice sheet retreat, and sea level change. And he was a lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, fifth assessment report in 2014, and played a leading role in the Antarctic drilling project, Andrew. Hello, Tim. You're a Jacob, and uh, thanks for having me on your odyssey. Yeah, th thanks, Tim. Uh, you know, timely conversation, I think, with COP26 kicking off. Um, I thought it would be good to start with John Mercer's paper in 1978, 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago now, West Antarctic Ice Sheet and CO2 Greenhouse Effect, a Threat of Disaster. If I just read this, um, this uh, intro here, if the global consumption of fossil fuels continues to grow at its present rate, atmospheric CO2 content will double in about 50 years. Climatic models suggest that the resultant greenhouse warming effect will be greatly magnified in high latitudes. The computed temperature rise at latitude 80 degrees south could start rapid deglaciation of West Antarctica, leading to a five meter rise in sea level. So that was more than 40 years ago, and we're still figuring this out. What, what's been the failure? What's been the challenge to get this translated to people? I wish I knew the answer to that, Jacob. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, John Mercer was a man ahead of his time and absolutely prophetic words. And you've got to put that in context. You know, that was a time when, you know, the word global warming had barely been, been coined by actually a famous paleoceanographer, Wally Broker um, at Lamont Doherty. And, you know, a lot of scientists thought we were actually heading back into an ice age. So a bit of warming might be a good thing. But we really didn't know. Um, it was really at the early stages of understanding this. So certainly the work that Mercer and others were doing was, um, you know, it was revolutionary, that thinking. And then, of course, it became mainstream after the um, Rio Earth Summit and the beginning of the IPCC reports. And so, you know, what are we now? We've just released the sixth um, edition of the IPCC assessment report. And, you know, they span back 30 years and the science has only got stronger and clearer and more certain over the last 30 years. And you can say, okay, maybe it took 10 or 15 years to get people aware of it, but there's really no excuse for the inaction that we've seen over the last, say, 10 to 20 years. And right now we're at the edge of the cliff. There simply um, is no more time. I mean, one of the, I guess, hopeful things about the IPCC's latest report is it is still possible. We can get to 1.5, we can get to two degrees, but it requires deep, global and strong commitment to emissions reductions. And, you know, we heard Prince Charles say um, when he opened COP26 in Glasgow, he said, this is last chance saloon for planet Earth. I've actually used that line and I didn't steal it off him. But anyway, no one he believes He stole that. it from you, didn't he? I reckon he stole it from me. That's right, Prince Charles. Um, 
But anyway, um, it really is. The big emitters in particular, the United States, uh, India, um, China, they have to front up, and they are. Um, you know, there'll always be arguments that it's too, it's it's not enough, and it's too late. Um, but you know, we'll see what the next two weeks bring. But if they can put down legally binding NDCs that get us on a path, NDCs to, nationally determined contributions for people that don't yeah, know. That, that's right. So that's the that's each country chooses its its number. And we're hoping that most of those big emitters will say, we want to be zero carbon by 2050, which is the pathway to Paris. It's the pathway to avoid global warming above 1.5 to, to 2 degrees. Yes, but yeah, I, I mean, I, sh I share the frustration. Um, you know, as a scientist, we've been saying this, and maybe we've just not been not very good at saying it, but, but the message is only really just starting to get heard now and before 24 hours ago my understanding was that the national policies was going to end us ending up around 2.7 3 degrees but what i have seen is with these new ndcs in the last 24 hours that we're now looking more at 1.9 degrees which is very encouraging um yep. and and I'm, I'm quite keen to talk a little bit about what that might mean and what these possible futures mean. But I thought before we get into that, Tim, um, it would be good to set the scene and in particular from a geological perspective, what we know from the past and how that helps us predict what we might see in the future. And ironically, a lot of that comes from similar technologies to oil and gas exploration, in particular, um, past climate reconstructions and um, marine and ocean um, seafloor sediments. Uh, how has that knowledge come about since John Mercer's prediction, in particular in Antarctica, and, and then leading up into you know, um, significant pieces of work like the 2009 uh, Nature Paper that, uh, that you were a leader of? Yeah, well, um, yeah, you're talking my language. I, wanna, I love talking about the past as, as a window into you know, what we might expect in the future. And, um, you're not wrong, you know. Um, think about it, I mean, your comment about the oil industry and needing to drill, to drill the rocks to get the records. The thing about Antarctica, of course, is it's covered in ice. And, um, you know, we can get, we can drill the ice and get um, really important climate archives for the last million years out of the ice. Um, but if we want to go back further in time, we need to drill the sediments because the ice, there's not, not much ice older than a million years. So we have to get into the, the sedimentary record, the layers of sediment around Antarctica that are sitting on the seabed. And, and they, re they record a history. They're like pages in a book. The deeper you go, the further into the book you get back in time. And they record a history of what our climate was like, what Antarctica was like, how big the ice sheet was, how warm the ocean was, what was growing on land, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, all of these things can be reconstructed and measured in, in the geologic record. But to get it, you know, you can't just walk around looking at rocks in Antarctica because there aren't many. They're mostly covered with ice. I mean, you've looked at a few in your career uh, where, where you can get them and you know how frustrating it is. And so to get, to get the, the long records, the, the detailed records, you have to drill. And so we use oil industry type technology 
actually, actually a blend of minerals and oil technologies. So yeah, the technology developed by the fossil fuel industry, exploration industry, but we use it for science. And we, we work with very innovative um, drillers and technologists in New Zealand who are leading the way world in being able to put a drill rig on floating sea ice or an ice shelf and then lower a pipe beneath it into the ocean and then drop it onto the sea floor and then drill through the sea floor and, and, and a thousand meters or more below. And by doing that, we've been able to go back um, many millions of years, uh, 20 million years. So through warm periods in the past called the Pliocene and the Miocene, even warmer than the Pliocene. The cool thing about the Pliocene is that this was the last, it's actually a warm period, but the cool thing about it is this was the last time Earth had 400 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is the, the level of greenhouse gases we have right now in the atmosphere. So we can go back there, drill the rocks, look at the layers of the rock record and figure out, okay, how warm was it? Um, what did the Antarctic ice sheet do? And I guess the big discovery we had about 15 years ago with the Andrew program was that we drilled back to the Pliocene and we found evidence to show that the ocean was five degrees warmer in the Ross Sea and that the West Antarctic ice sheet could not have existed. So to cut a long story short, and you'll probably ask me more questions, but to jump to the where we are today, through this geologic evidence, we know that if you keep the climate warmer than two degrees, and remember that's the Paris target, then you will ultimately lose large parts of the Antarctic ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet and bits of the East Antarctic ice sheet, and you will commit the world to sea level rise as much as 20 metres. And this is irreversible because once these ice sheets go, they take a really long time to grow back. So the decisions we are making right now at Glasgow and COP are determining the future shape of sea level change for hundreds to thousands of years and the shape of our shorelines, where our communities will live. So um, that is the power of the paleoclimate record is, you know, it's like a time machine. We go back and are able to say, hey, this is what happens. Therefore, the computer modelers who are doing the predictions for the future with climate models and ice sheet models, they can say, they can test their models against our data and say, yeah, these guys are right. Our models show the West Antarctic ice sheet goes away and that um, global sea level rises. And so now they're using these models to predict the future with the confidence that they actually work. They worked on the past and the things we are learning from the geologic record are really giving us big insights uh, in, into what's happening in the future. And I've just been listening last night to some presentations from geologists and ice sheet modelers who work on Antarctica. They've been talking at the COP um, as in a side event and showing that, and I'm, I may be jumping to the gun, but the, the big story that's come out of the science now is that if we overshoot two degrees, then we trigger irreversible loss 
of large parts of the Antarctic ice sheet and commit the world to as much as perhaps 15 metres of sea level rise. So there's a tipping point. A tipping, tipping point, point looks like it's right at two degrees. And, yeah. and, and this is one of these really important things. And I think, you know, the geologists, we've, you know, known this for some time and through understanding the record, we can see an Earth system, there's a carbon cycle that's in equilibrium. And when you change that system, when you add fossil carbon to it, like we are today, for example, the carbon cycle is no longer in equilibrium and we see significant changes in the Earth. These have happened in the past through natural variations, but now we're doing it because of burning enormous amounts of fossil fuel. Humans have lived for the most part in a stable climate for 10,000 years since the onset of agriculture. And we've not really seen any of these significant tipping points or, or major thresholds, you know, small fluctuations in the order of perhaps a degree um, during certain parts of the world, in certain parts of the world. Mm. But the geological record, we've got that fourth dimension of time and we can look back and understand some of these major tipping points. And so this two degree um, threshold, uh, are the, are these studies are uh, new, new modeling unpublished that are really confirming this, Tim, that you've seen in the last week or so, on top of you know the modeling that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years? Yeah, I mean, they're very recently published studies that actually were published in time for the recent IPCC report. Yep. So they are published. Um, some of the um, ice sheet modelers who are leading you know, this sort of thinking are here in New Zealand. Um, uh, Professor Nick Gollidge at Victoria University and others are overseas. Um, Professor Rob DeConto, um, from the University of Massachusetts um, was presenting last night um, at COP, um, well, their day, our night, um, showing what the implications of this new science and what it means if, you know, we keep, as you say, raising carbon dioxide in a linear way. It looks like once you hit 400 parts per million, you trigger a tipping point. And we are right, right there right now. And as you quite rightly say, Jacob, we would not know about tipping points if we didn't have the geological record. We would, we would not know our planet's capable of doing um, these rather rapid, dramatic, dramatic and remarkable things. And so the, I was just going to follow up. Just, just, oh, oh yeah, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just a quick point that, you know, the reason that the IPCC chose two degrees as a safe guardrail that, you know, we've got to keep our climate warming below two degrees is because of some of that climate science that comes from the paleo climate record. So um, yeah, that was where I was heading with that last bit. And, and unfortunately, um, the scientist, and when I look at what trajectories we're on, it looks very unlikely that we'll stay below 1.5. It looks like we're going to get into 1.5 in the 2030s, you know, my optimistic um, side of me would, would love to see ambition happen and we can get underneath 1.2, uh, uh, 1.5, but two degrees, re it really is possible if, if we get the action. Um, and then ultimately this means we save Greenland and we save the West Antarctic ice sheet from catastrophic collapse uh, over the next 
coming centuries and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the three planetary tipping points that we're messing with right now, which all could be triggered around two degrees or yeah, above two degrees, as you say, Greenland, the Antarctic ice sheet, and then the vast um, reservoir of methane hurled in permafrost in the Arctic, right? So the sleeping giant. So yeah, yeah, that could and that could really you know tip us quite quickly. And so, um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, you you mentioned NDCs before. I think there's reason to be hopeful. I you know I think if if the talk results in something signed at the end of COP on, on, on the dotted line from these countries, then we could be looking at a two degree, 1.9 degree future when you add up all the pledges, which is what people are trying to do as, as world leaders make their statements. Um, and, and, and that's great. That should give us some hope. I agree with you. I think 1.5 is gone um, and would require some technology anyway to remove some of the carbon from the atmosphere. So it's still something we may get there with technology, but two degrees is totally within our control. Um, and, you know, all I would say, and this has been said in New Zealand, you know, we've adopted that pathway of 50% by 2030, 100% by the year 2050, but talk is cheap. And it's actually gonna be a huge challenge to put in place viable pathways to get us there. So the first step is to get this signed off in Glasgow. The next step is for all of us to keep the pressure on our governments. And we can, as individuals, do a lot as well. You know, we can look at our own personal carbon footprint, but we'll need the government leadership to get it at the scale that, you know, is required. So, yeah, I mean, I'm more hopeful than I've actually been for a long time, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I think um, obviously what happens in the next few weeks and, and the, the community, you know, global community is really starting to put significant pressure on all, all the different stakeholders using their wallets, voting, etc. And so it is really encouraging to start to see the ambition start to, to pair up with the science. But as you say, the action's the next challenge. Yeah. In a two-degree world, we still get some warming. We still get some ice sheet melt, sea level rise. In terms of the rate of change and, and the ability for us to adapt in a 1.5 and a two-degree world, how manageable is that? Um, and what are the things that will still give us some issues in that situation? Yeah, good, good, good question. And you're, you're, what you're really um, referring to is committed climate change. What have we committed the system to from the heat that has already gone into the ocean and the atmosphere and the ice sheets? So even if we could be carbon zero tomorrow, um, and even if we achieve the Paris target, there is still going to be some impacts from climate change. Um, one of the, the main ones, that we hear a lot about is sea level rise. Um, so, you know, from the heat that is already in the ocean and in the ice and the glaciers, we can't avoid 30 centimetres of sea level rise by 2060 and 50 centimetres of sea level rise by the end of the century. And so that's, that's locked like, in. 
that's baked in. Yeah, that's baked in. So in a, in a way, that's good. We know that we can adapt to it. We've got time. Sea level rise isn't going to kick us immediately. So, so if we get on with it, we can adapt. The problem becomes, you know, if we go above two degrees and we start to flick some of these tipping point switches and we have Antarctica rapidly melting and Greenland irreversibly melting, um, and th then the uncertainty gets huge and the potential rates and magnitudes of sea level rise get very large. Um, and so the latest um, understanding of the Antarctic ice sheet and the latest modeling of the physics that we think are important for the Antarctic ice sheet is showing that, you know, if we stay on the path we're on, the worst case path of which we call um, socio shared socioeconomic pathway 8.5. So that's the IPCC's worst case scenario. If we stay on that path, um, we could have two meters of sea level rise by the end of the century. And we could have 15 meters of sea level rise by 2300 in two centuries time. You know, so that's, but if you're a planner, if you're a policymaker, if you live on the coast, if, if you're building a road, a port, a bridge, infrastructure on the coast that you want to last for 100 years, what do you do? Well, you build it at least for 50 centimetres of sea level rise, but you may be dealing with two metres of sea level rise. We don't know that yet, um, but I'm hopeful, as we've just said, that if we can really uh, make the commitments at this, this Glasgow meeting, we give ourselves. We still give ourselves a chance. It's it's not too late. And the, and the models look like the twenty second century is where things really start to to get ugly in that situation. So a lot of this change will commit to over the coming decades, depending on the pathway we choose. But the the really significant tipping point, or or, or you know, Earth system changes will happen. Uh, in the coming centuries rather than, than decades. One of the, one of the other um, concerning things is, you know, we're at, the, we're at the 400 ppm threshold now in the Pliocene, um, where we know we lose the West Antarctic ice sheet and we're two to three degrees warmer than, than we presently are. If we end up at 450 ppm or 500 ppm, which is still very possible, uh, we end up in an even warmer world. What what was the Miocene like, and and why is that like? Why is that so difficult for people to even wrap their heads around how different that world is to today? Even though we're getting into that world um, increasingly, you know, increasingly likely. Yeah, um, yeah. So the Miocene is the next step, really, as you say. Um, we could very well be heading towards 500, 600, 700 parts per million if, if we fail, um, if, if not higher. So that then brings us into the Miocene. So we go and look at the Miocene and see, well, what happens? What does the world look like? Um, the world's warmer. On average, it's three to four degrees warmer. So, um, you know, that's currently, um, we shouldn't head into that world, but we could. Um, and yeah, so we have no ice on Greenland, we have no ice on West Antarctica, and we've lost a third of the East Antarctic ice sheet 
um, the bits of it that were sitting with it, their toes, its toes in the ocean, sitting below sea level. The warming ocean is now completely, you know, eaten that part of the ice sheet out. Um, sea level is above 20 metres higher. Um, and we've started to lose bits of the terrestrial East Antarctic ice sheet, the ice that's sitting on land. So sea levels maybe 30 metres, 30 metres higher. Um, trees are growing on Antarctica. So as you know, Jacob, you and I have both been to this place um, in the Transantarctic Mountains where there are fossil beech trees, fossil leaves, remains of um, a tundra style vegetation with small beech trees around it. So, you know, that's just 15 million years ago. And we think there was about 500 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, you know, Antarctica had trees, it had beautiful fjords um, where there are now glaciers. And Much it's like a Patagonia type landscape, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that's a great example. You know, something like the Alaskan or Patagonian fjords. Um, and, you know, so we're going back to a time um, where really the Antarctic ice sheet is, well, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a place humans would like to live, but the Antarctic ice sheet um, will be very, very different. Our climate will be very, very different. And, you know, we're only talking about sea level rise, but, you know, the changes to the mid-latitude glaciers, water supply, storms, rainfalls, droughts, all of that would be very extreme. And um, I'm, I'm, pleased you've, I'm pleased you've brought the, the storms and the droughts into that because... In that situation, New Zealand looks a lot more like a Queensland type landscape. And in the Miocene, there was fossils in central Otago with crocodilian creatures and all sorts of things, much more like Queensland. Yeah. Where you have these big flash flood events and drought. Why? And, you know, some people might say, oh, you know, that's quite nice. Why is that a terrible thing? And, and why does that create a lot of um, challenges rather than uh, a slightly warmer temperature where people can go to the beach? Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head before when you talked about the rate of change. Um, you know, these these changes are going to happen very very fast, and you know, our civilization. You talked about ten thousand years, but if our, if we take Homo sapien, our species, we can go back a couple of million years, or even to our ancestors, Lucy, Australopithecus. You know, we can go back three million years. And so we have evolved since carbon dioxide dropped to pre-industrial levels. We were not alive in the Pliocene, in the warm Pliocene, not as we look now, our ancestors were. Um, so the rate of change is really important. We are just not adapted to that dramatic amount of, of change. And, um, you know, so we are living in places now that would be uninhabitable um, already parts of Australia get warmer than 50 degrees in the, in the middle of Australia. You can't live in those temperatures. So there would be large-scale disruption. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the answer to your question is, um, yes, we ultimately, the, the biology of this planet would adapt to that. Some species would die out. Um, others would originate um, in response, but it would be 
a, a, an incredible disruption on, on human timescales if we were to get to 500 or 1,000 parts per million carbon dioxide by the end of the century. And because we would have a temperature that was four to five degrees warmer. And that would literally um, result in um, simply millions, if not billions of, of people being, being at risk. And, and I think that's the scary part, isn't it? We could be at a 500 ppm world in the second half of the century, and we just don't really know what that upper bound rate of change is. You know, over the long term, certainly these things could change. But if we are in a 500 ppm world in the 2070s, for example, what does that look like? And it, in a way, you know, it probably completely dwarfs the, the COVID response right now and the challenges that we have right now. And I think that's the, the really concerning aspect of if we fail to get this two degree target, um, we have so many of these different futures and everything really is, um, is pinning on, on the next nine years to half emissions and then get towards net zero by 2050, um, mm. which we then come back obviously to this, this last chance saloon that you talked about at the start. Um, mm. People were saying this in Rio, you know, this is our, you know, sorry, uh, Copenhagen, 2009. I think, you know, this is our last chance. And uh, now we're here a decade later, this is our last chance. Why is this genuinely the last chance this time and not nine years ago, uh, sorry, uh, 11 years ago at Copenhagen? Well, I think probably Copenhagen was our last chance, to be honest. Um, and now, you know, we say it's our last chance because, um, you know, I mean, it literally is. Um, in terms of our understanding of, um, you know, how the simple relationship between CO2 and Earth's temperature works, um, you know, to avoid that at the current rate of emissions, right, um, we will be at 1.5 degrees in five years and 20 degrees in, in 10 years. It, 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 right now, as we've discussed, 1.5 is probably at the limit of, of what we can do as a species in terms of acting at scale and pace. Two degrees still on the table. Um, and you, you can look at the International Energy um, Association, I think it's the International Energy, they put this out, outlook out for two degrees and they show some very feasible, viable pathways to get the world there from an energy point of view. So I think there is genuine credibility in that pathway if, if we act now. But, you know, if we're still talking about this in five years' time, we'll, only, we'll, we'll already be at 1.5 degrees and well close to it. And, you know, it, it, things will be, become impossible. The other thing I think that's really important about doing the very best we can at this COP is that even if we don't make two degrees, we might land at 2.2 degrees, 2.5 degrees, which is a heck of a lot better than landing at four or five degrees. So, you know, we've got to be careful with the communication of targets that if they look hard or that we might not hit them, doesn't mean we should give up. It's okay to miss the target by a little bit. You know what it's like when it comes to a university deadline to hand an assignment in. It's okay if you hand it in a day late. You might get 5% penalty, but it's better than failing, you know? <laughs> Bad example. But, 
but but that's um, you know so I think you know we need to remain positive about the potential to do this and be realistic that we might be adapting to a world that's warmer than two degrees but hopefully not a world that looks like the Miocene um, or, or really even the Pliocene if we get lucky. And, and I think that's um, that positive messaging and painting a picture where, you know, it is a livable future and exciting and we don't have pollution and we do have all of these fantastic new technologies is, is great. And, and, you know, at the moment, we don't have technologies um, capable of drawing down, but I think definitely part of that equation is also going to need some level of, of carbon drawdown as well. Um, Tim, you've, you've worked in a number of different teams, international and, and domestic teams to solve a range of different climate problems over your career. What, what do you think are some of the main challenges and some of the, 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 the opportunities that you've seen from the, the different teams that you've worked with to try and solve some of these really important problems? Ooh, I don't know if there's any magic formula um, and I'm not sure we've solved the climate problems, but we've, we've at least made some inroads into understanding the science and the Im impacts of climate change. But, um, you know, I think whether you're working at the, at the national scale or the international scale, the most important thing is you work collaboratively and collectively for a common purpose. There's no special interest here. There's no, you know, I'm only interested in what's good for me or my institution or my country. This is a globally shared problem and it takes a global collaborative approach. So I think if you, you know, even in the New Zealand science funding context, if you can get beyond institutional profit and you can get several institutions together supported by our government to tackle a global problem, like we did with the Andrew project and other countries came in, you can leverage a lot of horsepower. You've got other countries putting resources, money, um, in Antarctic situation, ships, aeroplanes, infrastructure. Um, and, you know, a small country like New Zealand, as a broker, as a good, honest broker and a leader, can then bring along this, this huge group that then go on and make some fundamental discoveries. Um, so I think, you know, all problems... Part of the danger with the pandemic actually is, is that, you know, one of the approaches is to just to circle the wagons and, and, and just, um, you know, take a very national point of view. And, you know, that can work if everyone does the, the right thing in the same direction. But, you know, you lose focus on shared goals. So globalization, you know, is important. And, you know, if you look at, the World Economic Forum. So these guys care about money and making money. They have, each year they put out global, a global risk assessment. What are the big global issues that could derail the economies of the world? Um, in the top 10 for the last five years, climate change and environmental related issues have been in the top five of, on, on that risk. So. The money people know what we need to do, and, and, and that says a lot. Um, pandemics have, have now got into the top 10, thanks to COVID, and they sit at about number five. So the biggest existential threat, whether you're a money person, whether you're worried about economic growth, if you're worried about poverty or social well-being, 
the biggest existential threat remains climate and environmental issues. And you mentioned this before, it's very easy. You know, we are dealing with this, with this pandemic and people are dying, but not at the scale of, of suffering that would come if we didn't, um, if we let go of climate policy and didn't reduce our emissions. And um, so I've drifted from leadership to, to, to some of the impacts, but I think, you know, that it's not different. I mean, the world has to get, has to work together. It has to look at the common goal and it has to put the resources in. And I don't think it's any different in science leadership. It's being able to broker those deals to bring everyone along um, so you can get things done in a timely fashion. And I think that's one of the unique components of Antarctic sciences because of the the uh, logistical constraints of traveling to these, you know, incredibly remote and, and challenging environments uh, requires a huge level of innovation and collaboration um, that, you know, isn't seen in, in, in a lot of other fields, um, but a lot of that knowledge and skills can also be applied to sol solving some of these other really large and, and um, you know, inter integrated or non-siloed issues. Um, where, where do you where do you see the I guess the the challenges in science now we kind of know what the tipping points and what the challenges are but what are some of the the, the questions in science that we're still working on to try and tune the models and, and really figure out what you know some of these rates of change might be yeah I mean, I really do think this COP is about, not really so much about the science. The science is in, the science says there's an emergency. So, you know, you know if I was, uh, and I hate to say this because it would not benefit me, but if I was funding science today, I would be looking at using science for solutions to both mitigate and adapt to climate change. I think we know enough. However, um, it would be enormously useful if we could narrow the uncertainties down around how much sea level will rise, how, you know, there are still significant uncertainties. And, you know, we talked about this before, that if you're thinking about building a nuclear power station, but that's a bad example, let's say you're building a, um, a new port um, or a runway near the coast, that's going to be around in 100 years' time. What do, you, what do you plan for? We still don't know if it's going to be two metres of sea level rise or half a metre of sea level rise. So I think any work we can do to reduce that uncertainty by a better understanding of the processes of the physical climate system and um, get those physics built into models for better predictions, then, you know, that's still really important science. So there is a lot of, uh, I think, fundamental science that still needs to be done that will help humanity, will help us better understand the risk, well, the impacts first, then the risk, and then obviously help with, with the solutions. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And ultimately, I think if we don't get below this two degree target, it's not gonna end well. We don't quite know what the end point will be. And as you say, you know, 2.5 is better than four, three or four, but, the, the, the key message here is if this fails, we don't, you know, in five years time and in, in 10 years time, it's too late. We have to get this right now. The science has shown us that 
action on emissions can prevent the worst. Do you have any concluding comments on how, you know, on, 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 on how important this is or, or, or anything else before we wrap up, Tim? Uh, oh, look, it, it, you know, it, it's one of the major issues facing humanity. And depending on your perspective, you might not agree. And that's totally fair enough. Some people are just trying to live, to put food on the table, to get jobs. And in, you know, in some ways, climate change feels like a sort of a, a middle-class, wealthier sort of pursuit. But it, the people who are going to be impacted the most and are the most vulnerable are the developing nations, the, 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 the small islands and the developing states. So, um, you know, it's... All I would say is, um, as, a, as a concluding remark, is that I think we are seeing a genuine sea change in the way people, we, are standing up and saying, we've had enough, we must have this change. And I think we're now seeing with this, with this COP, and I hope I don't have to eat my words, that we will end up with a really good result. And then it's up to all of us living on this planet to ensure that we, get, we, we, we do the things we need to do to get there. So, I mean, I don't have any magic answers. Um, I think, you know, I'm, as a scientist, I'm privileged to have been involved in the process where science is providing the evidence that is causing the, us to change. I'm frustrated it's taken so long for the science to be taken seriously. Um, and as a New Zealander, I think, you know, just a shout out for Kiwis, I think, you know, we're playing quite a big role, both in our leadership at the governmental level, and Jane Shaw, our Minister of Climate Change, is there in Copenhagen, delivering the new NDC. Um, but also, you know, we have some of the world's leading scientists who are contributing to the understanding of climate change, how to adapt it to it, and how to mitigate. So, you know, if I was a young person, I'd, I wouldn't be feeling I wouldn't be feeling too anxious. I'd be feeling hopeful. Um, and I'd be feeling excited about the opportunities, you know, whether whatever you get into, you know, whether it's um, you become a scientist like myself or whether you're into technologies around carbon sequestration, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, um, there are going to be huge opportunities where, you know, your brains, your energy are required and where, as you said before, Jacob, we'll get all the co-benefits of a sustainable world, a healthier world, a cleaner world, um, and just, you know, a better way of life for us. So, you know, it's a long-winded final wrap-up, but I think it is important to be hopeful and to um, give our young people a sense of purpose rather than always hearing doom and gloom because we might not, we're not heading there at the, at the current stage. I, could, I couldn't agree more, and, and um, you know, I think, Obviously, this next two weeks is going to be critical. And hearing in the last 24 hours this 1.9, it's, it's really encouraging. And I think people can really own the challenge and see the new opportunities with this, be them through individuals and their families and their small or large workplaces. There's going to be a huge range of benefits and opportunities stemming from this in, in every aspect of, of how we live. I just want to say... Tim, thanks so much for all of the work that you've done over the last 
few decades and helping us understand how the earth works and you know some really valuable contributions to to solving the, the climate challenge and, and understanding how sea levels have been changing so um, I just want to acknowledge that as well uh, and, and thanks thanks so much for for having a chat with me today yeah thank, thanks thanks very much Jacob it's a privilege and good luck with your odyssey because you're one of the change makers of the future appreciate that uh, thanks, Tim, and bye, everyone.